begin. If you would, please rise for the call to worship. Lord, a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Let us sing to the Lord this morning. Our first hymn, number 16. Come, let us sing to the Lord.
Let us pray. Glorious God, it is the chief end of man to worship and enjoy you forever. Give us your congregation, power by your spirit to help us worship and praise you today. Help us to forget the world, be brought into fullness of life, be refreshed, comforted, and blessed in this your Sabbath. We thank you for Matt and Elizabeth and their new daughter, Sylvia. Bless them and keep them this morning. Lord, now use your servant Ian as he brings your word to us today. These things we beseech you in Christ's name. And now hear us as we pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thank you to come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Remain standing, if you will, and let us use the Apostles' Creed for our confession of faith this morning. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven and our heavenly Father, we praise you as our creator and redeemer. Every good and perfect gift comes down from you. And we pray that you would expand our heart's capacity to love you. Father, we lift up First Presbyterian Church Louisville to you now and pray that you would meet us where our needs are greatest. We pray for those who are struggling with health. And we pray that for those who are struggling to hope. We lift up this community as they extend the gospel to their neighbors. And Father, we lift up the church in Mississippi and the church in the United States. We pray, Father, that the preaching of the gospel would sound forth in purity and truth across this land. And we lift up the church abroad, O Father, that you would give them strength in the face of persecution that they would remain steadfast in their love of Jesus Christ. We lift up state and local and federal officials, Father, and we pray that they would execute justice righteously and that they would walk in integrity and with wisdom. And Father, on this day, this special day which you set apart for our rest in your worship, we pray that you would fill us and that you would enliven us once again to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
For the sake of Jesus Christ, we pray these prayers in his name. Amen. Now I invite you to worship God by the giving of tithes and offerings. Let's pray again. O Lord, our God, we have no crowns to give, but what you have given, we return to you today. Content to feel that everything that is ours when it is yours is more fully ours 
when we have yielded it to you. Bless these, our gifts and our tithes today, we pray, to forward your kingdom in this church and throughout the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we have the great privilege of having Ian Hammond with us, who is a pastor with Reform University Fellowship International and has been supported by this church now for eight years. Ian was raised in South Mississippi on the Gulf Coast and went to Mississippi College where he finished and then to Reform Theological Seminary where while he was at Reform Seminary began his ministry as an RUFI uh, staff member there at Mississippi College. And after Mississippi College, he took a position at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Am I correct? Yeah. Where he and his wife, Hannah, and his daughter, Finley, and soon to be another child, are going to be living and continuing their mission there on the campus there at Northwestern. If you missed it this morning, we had a great presentation at Sunday School of the work that's going on there and the many opportunities, opportunities he has had to minister to the lives of international students and to have the privilege of baptizing some of those students and to send those students even back to many fields of work wherever the Lord is taking them. And he's going to tell us a little bit about that this morning before he brings us the sermon this morning. Please give him your attention. Thanks for the introduction, uh, Dr. Sam, Dr. Suttle. As he said, it's, it's good to be here. My name is Ian Hammond, and I am your RUF International Campus Minister at Northwest University, which is on the, the north shore of Chicago. I, I serve there alongside my wife, Hannah, as we welcome international students with hospitality, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, and equip kingdom ambassadors. And so we are six years in, and we still believe in the strategic value of this ministry. There are over 6,000 internationals in the community there on campus. They come from about 100 countries, and it is just thrilling to be a part of the mission of the church to make disciples of all nations. As Jesus said in, in the Gospels, uh, people are coming from the East and the West to recline at the table with Abraham in the kingdom of heaven. At our weekly dinner and Bible study, we have students from Saudi Arabia, India, Nigeria, China, Mexico, Iran, and Vietnam all studying the scriptures together. About a month ago, I met a student from, well, not a student, he's a professor from Brazil. He's a physics professor. I met him at our English language club on campus. And after a couple of meetings, I invited him to get a cup of coffee together. And one of the first things he said to me, he said, Ian, I need the peace of God in my life. I need to figure this Bible thing out. And I told him, you know, this is the very reason 
I have been sent here to help you do just that. And so we've been studying the scriptures together for the last month or so, seeing how both the Old and the New Testament is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hannah, my wife, saw a need on campus. When international students come to the United States, sometimes they bring along with them their wives. And because of the visa situation, they are not able to work or they're not able to study. And so these women have lots of extra free time on their hands. And some of them are lonely. Some of them are bored. And so we started this wives gathering. And around 15 wives come together each week to, to connect with one another. One student after the first meeting said to my wife, Hannah, I am so thankful for this group. I haven't left my apartment for more than a month. Probably the biggest update I have to share with you today is that my family is moving. For the last six years, we have lived two miles from campus in a condo. Uh, the Lord has used this place in some remarkable ways. We have had countless international students into our home for countless meals, countless Bible studies. On Thanksgiving, we move all of our furniture to the side so that we can fit as many international students as we can around a table. And uh, we have sat on our living room couch and prayed with students, sometimes cried with international students as they counted the cost of following Jesus. But in God's providence and with the vision of Grace Presbyterian Church of the North Shore, a door has been opened up for us to move right across from campus. So a house, I mean a condo will become a house. Two miles will become 100 yards. And we are thrilled about the prospect of serving practically on campus. This means that students, instead of hopping on the bus, whether snow or sunshine, to come down to our condo, they can literally walk out of their lab, out of their classroom, and be at the door of our house in a matter of seconds. And so we see more hospitality in the future. We see more Bible studies, more meals, more gospel proclamation by God's grace, more gospel impact. Uh, with this move, we need to raise some extra support. We're moving from a condo to a nice house across campus. Uh, Grace Prez very generously and sacrificially is renting us this property for half the cost. But we need to raise about $1,000 in new monthly support. And so if you're interested in supporting us this way, uh, or you're just interested in getting updates on our ministry, I brought two things with me, a How to Give card and an information card if you want to get on our email list. I believe Dr. Soto put those in the lobby back here. Uh, lastly, I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel. You have been wonderful partners. Because of you, the gospel goes out to the nations. It's a pleasure to be a partner with you in the ministry. Should we do the, the next hymn? Yeah, let's go ahead and, and stand once again for hymn 605.
Please be seated. It's a, it's a real honor and privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. We are in the letter to the Romans. One pastor has called this the greatest letter ever written, and I, I tend to agree with that, but he's probably saying that because of what comes in the first two-thirds of the book, and this morning we are in the last third. In our passage this morning, which is Romans 12, verses 3 through 21, we have 30 commands from the Apostle Paul, but it's important not to forget everything that has come before this. This is not Paul's prior Pharisaic legalism cropping back up in his apostolic mission. No, what we have in these verses we're about to read is an invitation to live a life transformed by the power of the gospel. So with that in mind, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 12. Let's pray before we read the words together. Our great God in heaven, we ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears to see the glories of Jesus Christ in his gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. This is the word of God. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight, repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. I remember the first time that I heard the conversion story of Rosaria Butterfield. It's a 
kind of remarkable story, which is why I remember it. But what was so inspiring to me at the time that I heard this as an aspiring pastor were the figures of Pastor Ken and his wife, Floyd. When Rosaria first met Pastor Ken and Floyd, she was a professor at Syracuse University. And the way that she described herself at the time was that she was a radical leftist professor in a committed lesbian relationship, and she had a very, very negative view of evangelical Christians. So much so that after she published a book that was aimed at getting her tenure, she turned her academic guns towards evangelical Christians, and the one book that she believed had gotten everyone off track, the Bible. And so her first offensive came in the form of a article, an article in the local newspaper, and this article generated lots of responses. So many responses that she had two boxes on her desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But as she dug through that mail, there was one letter that resisted her filing system. It was a letter from Pastor Ken of Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquisitive letter. He invited her to explore several questions, the kind of questions that an English professor such as Rosario would, could appreciate. How did you rot, arrive at your interpretation? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with her article as much as ask her to defend the beliefs that lay behind it. She didn't know how to respond to the letter, so she threw it in the trash. But later in the night, she dug the letter back out because Ken had invited her to dinner. And she thought, you know what? I'm going to go to this dinner. But she had a clear motive in mind. This is going to provide some good data for my research against evangelical Christians. But Ken and Floyd defied her expectation of Christians, which were largely based on her experiences of Christians at, prote at protesting gay pride events or on TV doing political commentary, they actually became her friends. They entered her world. They met the people in her orbit. They spoke openly and honestly about controversial topics. They exchanged books. They, for two years... For two years, Ken and Floyd brought the church to Rosaria when she would not have been open to being, being brought to the church. When they ate together, Ken prayed. And his prayers were intimate. They were vulnerable. He thanked God for things. He confessed sin. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy and grace. Rosaria continued reading her Bible and on her own initiative, she began visiting the church that Ken pastored. And then in her own words, Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything I loved. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, and then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, and then in community, and then in a covenant home where one calls me wife, and many call me mother. I have never met Ken or Floyd, but 
in many ways, I consider them role models for the Christian ministry. What does it look like to take seriously not only the first part of Romans, but the last part? To borrow phrases from the verses before our passage, what does a life, what does a body offered to God in a, a mind renewed by God look like in practice? In other words, what difference does the gospel make? Well, what we'll see this morning is the gospel makes a big difference. It changes things. The gospel changes the way we relate to ourselves, our gifts, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and yes, even our enemies. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to consider these four, these four changes. Ourselves, our gifts, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and our enemies. We're going to spend the most time on this first point. First, the gospel changes the way we relate to ourselves. In C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Mere Christianity, he has a chapter titled, The Greatest Sin. And in this chapter, he makes the argument that pride is the greatest of all sins. He writes, pride is essentially competitive, while other vices are competitive only by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having it more than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or intelligent or attractive, but they are not. They're proud of being richer or more intelligent or more attractive than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud. It's the pleasure of being above the rest. He further adds, It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in this world and in every nation and every family since, family since the world began. Other vices may bring people together. There may be some good jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only does it bring enmity between fellow humans, it makes communion with God impossible. He writes, In God, you come up against something that is immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on people and on things. And of course... As long as you're looking down, you cannot see what is above you. And so it is no coincidence that at the start of Paul's consideration of a life transformed by the gospel, he takes aim at pride. Pride is destructive to fellowship. And to be a Christian, we see in verses 4 and 5, means you are a member of a body that a body composed of many members who collectively are one body in Jesus Christ. And so, if we are going to live a life of fellowship together, we need to reshape, we need to change the way we relate to our very selves. Paul writes in verse 3 that we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. You know, this can look like a couple of things in practice, you're either, if, you know, pride can either look like delusional arrogance on the one hand, or it can look like delusional self-pity 
on the other. This is the, the two sides of the coin of, of pride. Pride, when you feel like you're doing well, looks like an inflated sense of self-importance, right? Pride, when you don't feel like you're doing well, looks like self-pity. And the common thread that joins these two states is the preoccupation with self. Pride can look like the man who can't stop talking about his accomplishments. Pride can also look like the man who can't stop talking about his failures or the fact that he doesn't get the recognition or opportunities that he deserves. Both forms of pride lead us to assume that people are thinking, worrying, talking about us more than they actually are. Both forms of pride suck the air out of the room and make every conversation revolve around oneself. And both versions of pride make us completely miserable because pride is the fruit of idolatry. It's basing one's self-worth, its ultimate self-worth, ultimate significance, ultimate status in something other than God. It may be beauty. And so when you feel beautiful, you are golden. But when you feel ugly, you are trash. It may be success. And so when you are successful, you feel like you're the master of the universe. And when you're not so successful, you feel like a loser. And the frightening thing about pride we learn from these verses is that even our religious life can be used as a means of pride. Our giftedness, our righteousness, our knowledge, our service can be a means of building up self and looking down on others. And so, all of this means that the solution to thinking too highly of oneself cannot just be to think lowly. No, in verse 3, Paul says, we must think with sober judgment. You know, in order to give yourself an accurate assessment in every, any area, you must, you must have a measure of detachment, right? You must relativize the importance of that area that you're assessing yourself in. Because if all that matters to you is that you're a good mother, when you look in the mirror, you will see the greatest mother who ever lived or the worst mother who ever lived. What you will not be is sober-minded. Sober-mindedness gives us the ability to see ourselves accurately. It, it, it lowers the stakes. It helps us see the good in us and also where we need to grow. You know, it doesn't even necessarily think, mean you're going to think less of yourself. More so, think of yourself less. Now, doesn't that sound wonderful? Freedom from the, like, the vicious highs and lows of life. Freedom to look at yourself soberly. Freedom to grow. How do we get there? Well, the secret to humility comes at the end of verse 3 in this little phrase. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, this translation is in the ESV. It's a good translation, but I think the New American Standard says it a little more clearly. It says... As God has assigned to each a measure of faith. And so the command in verse 3 would read this way. Think with sober judgment as God has assigned to each a measure of faith. Now this is Paul's point. Recognizing that God has assigned to each a measure of faith is a barricade against pride. And this is true for three reasons. Firstly, by saying we should judge ourselves by the measure of our faith... Paul turns pride upside down. What is faith? Faith is a 
in essence, recognizing your complete and unqualified dependence upon God. Faith is an expression, a confession of your complete insufficiency. And so Paul, by making faith the metric by which we judge ourselves, is saying this, judge yourself by how much you see your need of Christ. This is why Jesus says in the gospel, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven doesn't look like a strength you can boast in. It looks like the weakness of a child. Paul invites us here to a boasting in our weakness. We are to boast in the fact that we can boast in nothing in and of ourselves before God. And in this way, Paul turns pride upside down and opens us up to judge ourselves from whatever angle soberly. Because this means that you are not ultimately judged by how gifted or good you are in any area. You simply ask yourself, do I need Jesus? Is Jesus my only comfort in life and death? Do I trust Jesus? And if you do, the most important judgment is settled. You are fully and finally judged righteous in the Son. And if this is true, all other judgments, all other assessments become a little less important. Secondly, by making clear the reason that we have faith is due to God, it it makes thinking highly of oneself ridiculous. Faith is a gift of God. Paul says it is assigned or given out by God's grace. It's not earned or self-generated, and so it bears no reflection upon your great talent, ability, or moral excellence. Paul makes this argument in 1 Corinthians 4 when he says, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It is silly to boast in something that you received but did not earn. Boasting in your faith is like boasting in the fact that you have air in your lungs. You did nothing to obtain oxygen other than breathe it in. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, Paul draws out our attention to the fact that you are not the only one to whom God has given faith. God has assigned to each a measure of faith. You know, pride often looks like the belief that you're something special. Life would not work out apart from you, apart from you being at your best. This is, by the way, the reason we too often hear of great moral failings of leaders both inside and outside the church. Pride leads you to think, you know, I'm something special. And then, and then it leads you to believe that the rules or the consequences shouldn't apply to you. I shouldn't have to face these consequences because the kingdom of God will fall apart without me. Pride causes us to look at service in a very worldly way. We think to ourselves, if I'm not center stage, I'm not important. This is the exact opposite of how the Bible speaks of the church. We are a body of members who have different functions. And we're all important to the functioning of the body. And so Paul, in these verses, completely changes our relationship to self. He says the most important thing about you is your faith in Christ. This faith is a gift of God, and it has been given to the entire body of believers. You see, the gospel of grace through faith frees us from debilitating 
self-pity on the one hand, and destructive arrogance on the other. It brings us low, teaching us that everything we have is a gift from God. And it brings us high, teaching us that everything we have is a gift from God who loves us so much that not only does he give us his son, he gives us the faith to embrace him. All right, point two, the gospel changes our relationships to our gifts. I was talking with someone the other day about ministry, and there's something so commonplace that I think we tend to miss its significance. What does Paul not say in verse 6? He does not say we have talents that differ. What does he say? We have gifts that differ. Talents sounds like something innate or cultivated or created by yourself. The Bible reframes our talents as gifts. The gifts are abilities given by God, exercised by faith in God, and used for the good of the people of God. And Paul teaches in verse 6 that everyone has gifts and that we must use them. You know, the ideal church isn't a church that have great staff who do everything excellently, efficiently, and effectively. No, the ideal church is one in which the whole body of believers come together using our gifts for the good of the body. Now, the list that Paul gives in verses 6 to 8 is not exhaustive. There are other lists in the New Testament. But basically, these gifts fall into two categories, word gifts and deed gifts. This fits the pattern of ministry in the Gospels as well. We are to serve the world in word and deed as Jesus did before us. Now, we all share these gifts in some measure, but those to whom God has given a greater measure in an area are called to devote themselves to that area. So recall what happens in Acts 6. As the Jerusalem church prospers, a controversy arises within the church about the distribution of goods to widows. And so... There's a dispute, and so they summon the apostles, and what do the apostles say to them? They say, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation and full of the spirit and of wisdom who will will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They said this in no way to denigrate deed ministry, but they recognized that they had a unique responsibility, a unique role to play namely prayer in the ministry of the word. And so they invited the church to get some men together to take responsibility in this area. And so, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you have gifts, and God calls you to use them. No one is giftless, and no one is meant to be a mere spectator in the life of the church. You may have word gifts. You may have deed gifts. Whatever the case, you're called to use them. You may, you know, it may or may not be in a formal capacity. Maybe you need a volunteer reaching out to youth and passing on wisdom to the next generation. Maybe you need a volunteer reaching out to children and passing on the stories of our faith or reaching out to a struggling a small group member who you reach out to to, to hear from and to, to pray with and to hope with. Maybe you need to lead in welcoming visitors and setting up and taking down after church meetings. Maybe you need to serve on a committee to provide some administrative relief for pastors. Or maybe the Lord might be calling you to leave, to be sent by this church to preach the gospel elsewhere. The world needs missionaries. 
The U.S. church needs pastors. I don't know what the Lord would have you to do, but I do know this. He calls you to serve. For the Son of Man, when he came, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Point three, the gospel changes how we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. In verses 9 through 13, Paul teaches that we are to love each other genuinely, zealously, and aggressively. Our love is to be genuine, that is to be done with gentleness and truth. Probably unlike any other Christian doctrine, the doctrine of love is the most misunderstood doctrine in this polarized age. On the one side of the spectrum, you have love that is all gentleness and no truth. And on the other side, you have all truth and no gentleness. Love that is all gentleness, no truth, makes us feel warm inside, makes us feel good, but it keeps us blind to the faults that we have, the sins that we have that destroy our lives and the lives of others. Love that is all truth and no gentleness tells us how it is, but doesn't help us, doesn't change us, makes us incapable of change. But love that is gentle and true, that has the power to change. This is the love of God who tells us the truth about ourselves and yet moves towards us in mercy and grace. Our love is to be zealous There is to be an element of competition in the body of Christ, but it's not the competition of getting honor. It's the competition of giving honor. Verse 10 says, we are to outdo one another in showing honor. We move toward one another, not expecting other people to accommodate to us, but expecting that we would accommodate to others. Among other things, this means that we will not be easily offended. Being easily offended is an honor-seeking behavior. You're offended when you believe that someone has stolen some honor from you. The gospel turns this on its head and says we are more concerned about others' honor than we are our own. And isn't this precisely what Jesus did for us? He who was equal to God came to earth in the form of a servant. He humbled himself by coming obedient Obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, death on a cross. The most shameful and despised death in the ancient world. He's despised the shame. He hung there naked and exposed so that we might be clothed with the honor of heaven. Brothers and sisters, we do not have to defend our honor. God has given to us an honor that is indestructible, unfading, and will never end. Our love is to be aggressively hospitable. That's a strange way of saying that, isn't it? I put it this way because I saw something very interesting in the text. In verse 13, Paul says, seek to show hospitality. In verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Now, the word seek and the word persecute is the same word in the Greek. I find that the English word hunt is a a good word that captures both meanings here. Hunt down opportunities to show hospitality and bless those who hunt you. The idea is this. Do not be uh, passive. Be active. Do not wait for the obligation of hospitality to be thrusted upon you. Go out there and get it. When I decided uh, to attend seminary near to Hannah, who was my girlfriend at the time and is now my wife, we decided that uh, 
since we were serious about each other, we needed to attend the same church. And so we started visiting churches, and one Sunday we visited this, this small church called St. Paul's Presbyterian Church. And um, it was a small church. It was meeting in another church's building at the time. The average age was much older than we thought we were looking for, but the preaching was just spectacular. We ended up becoming members there, but it wasn't the preaching that made us decide this. In fact, it was like we didn't decide it at all because at that first visit, we got so many invitations to Sunday lunch that we had to like come back in order to make good on the hospitality that was being offered to us. And if I'm honest, at first, I did not even really want to go visit these people. But at the end of it, I was inspired by them. I wanted to learn from them. Their faith seemed to have some substance. They took very seriously the call to hospitality, and it was contagious. Now, hospitality has two roles, right? Guest and host. And it takes humility to, to occupy either of these roles. It takes humility to put yourself out there, right? And to, to seek out others and to put their comfort above your own. And it also takes humility to be on the receiving end of service, to be there as a guest. Practically, this means that we have to make and receive invites, no matter how inconvenient or uncomfortable it might feel at first. Because if you step out in faith you will find that the alienation and isolation that characterizes this age can be undone by the practice of holy hospitality. Remember Jesus, when he came, he came eating and drinking with sinners, just like us. Fourth and finally, the gospel changes how we relate to our enemies. Maybe the most distinctly Christian act that one can do is to love one enemy. This is the most countercultural counsel that has ever been given in world history, and it makes no sense at all, apart from the central message of the gospel. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. Why in the world would you bless those who persecute you other than the fact that Christ blessed us who persecuted him? Why else would you not return evil from evil other than the fact that Jesus returned our evil with good? The gospel reshapes our approaches to enemies completely. It takes vengeance out of our hands and places it in the hands of the living God. Jesus did not open his mouth to curse because he had entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The fact is, is that though injustice may persist in this age, justice in the end will win out. There will be a great day of judgment. And the wrongs that have been done will be punished by God, either on the cross borne by his son or upon the persons who committed them. In verse 21, Paul says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What does it look like to be overcome by evil? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like being consumed and devoured by the cycle of returning evil for evil. Overcoming evil looks like returning evil with good. It looks like putting your daggers down and entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. Will not the God of heaven and earth do right? He will. He did this for Jesus in the resurrection, 
And he will do this in him for you. The fact that Jesus died for our sins and rose again for our everlasting life changes things. The gospel changes things. It changes the way we relate to ourselves, to our gifts, to our brothers and sisters, and yes, even our enemies. The gospel changes everything. Let us pray. Our great God in heaven, we love you, Lord, because you first loved us. We walk with the verdict of righteous hanging upon our heads. You have declared us righteous in your Son. And we are thankful that you have not left us to our vices, but you have given to us gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Father, that you would empower us to walk in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please... Join me in standing as we sing our closing hymn, hymn 701, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It. Look up and receive God's good blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in the peace of Christ. Amen.